It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18. Plus. Hello everyone, I hope that you're all doing well. The warm weather is upon us, but these stories are still guaranteed to keep you chilled. Let's not waste any time and get into it, as we drift further into Mr. Creep's mind. I'm a delivery driver. Your disturbing item is on the way. Written by Doomed Geek. I was the first person from my family to go to university and as I packed up my car and got ready to leave home, I felt proud and excited. There was sadness as well. I would miss my parents and still wondered what might have been if Mary Beth and I had stayed together. She was my first love and it still hurt that we had broken up. Even as I started the car and turned to give my parents a goodbye wave, it was her that I was thinking of. I focused on the road ahead. I would see my parents again when I came back for a visit at the end of the term, and no doubt I would see Mary Beth around town then as well, though hopefully not with Todd, her new boyfriend. It was warm, a clear day in early September as my hometown slipped away behind me, and I was soon on the interstate with the radio on. I would meet plenty of girls at university, I told myself and I turned the music up. The campus I would be studying at was on a city center site, and I found accommodation in a student residence close by. After a long day's drive, I reached my destination, parked up and climbed out of my car. My back was aching and my neck was stiff from all the hours behind the wheel, but as I stood on the sidewalk and took a first look at my new neighborhood, I soon forgot about my discomfort. There was a myriad of stores that seemed to sell everything under the sun, and I could see at least half a dozen bars and restaurants within a few minutes walk. I wasn't old enough to go in the bars and from the looks of the restaurants, I doubted that I would be able to afford to eat in them, but that wasn't the point. They were pulsing with life, the whole street was and it was infectious. And then a police car sped past, its siren blaring. I was in such a good mood this felt exciting rather than worrying. In my small hometown, the sound of a police siren after dark would have set off a chorus of barking dogs and twitching curtains. Here, I seemed to be the only person who was paying any notice to it. Even the busker across the road had not missed a note in his enthusiastic rendition of an 80s classic as the car passed. It had charted when I had still been a glint in my parents' eyes, but it was one of those songs that endured. The busker had an especially high note and coins clinked into his open guitar case from people walking by. Somebody was filming the busker as well, a young woman maybe a couple of years older than me. Her long dark hair hung almost to her waist, and I only realized that I was staring when she had finished filming, turned around and glanced at me. 
I felt my cheeks coloring. Looking down at my feet and sensed rather than saw her walking towards me. Hey, newbie, she said brightly. I looked up. She was very pretty and she was smiling at me, so I needed to say something dazzling and funny and cool. I failed. Instead, I said, Hey, um, how do you know that I'm new? She turned to my car and replied, From the number of things packed into your car that were clearly put there by parents. Top tip, it's not worth the effort of carrying most of those things up to your room. I grinned and I knew exactly what she meant. I had boxes of groceries that I had bought when I arrived, but my mom insisted that I bring them just in case. She had not specified in case of what. Possibly a zombie apocalypse that left the city stores all out of canned soup and toilet paper. I grinned sheepishly and replied, It won't be too bad. I can use the elevator. She threw her head back and laughed. The elevator? That hasn't worked since I moved in. I knew that my room was on the 18th floor and the prospect of having to get everything up that many stairs was stressful. But on the plus side, this gorgeous young woman was going to be one of my neighbors, so life wasn't all that bad, I figured. Especially if I could get to know her better. Uh, I said. Well, in that case, maybe you could give me a hand carrying it up. We could maybe go out afterwards and I could buy you a coffee as a thank you. Or a pizza, I added hastily, thinking how weak a coffee sounded the moment the words were out of my mouth. She laughed again. Good try, she said. See you around. Maybe. And with that, she was gone, letting herself into the student apartment block with a swipe card. I stood there still smiling for a minute and then took a deep breath and started unloading my car. What felt like an absolute age later, I collapsed onto the bed in my new room surrounded by boxes. I was exhausted and as my eyes closed, I thought how all I wanted to do was sleep. Which was the moment that the music started up. It sounded like it was coming from the room directly below mine. A bass beat that felt like it was making my entire room shake. I lay there with my eyes open, now wide open. All my neighbors were students, so it was no surprise really that there was music blaring out. I checked the time on my phone. It was 10pm. So, late for sharing your tunes at volume, but not completely unreasonable, I decided. I sighed and rolled off the bed and decided to unpack. Hopefully soon the music would quit and I could get to sleep. Four hours later, just after 2am, the music finally stopped. I was so relieved that I lay back down on the bed. The quiet was bliss. Ten minutes later, I heard a door slamming and voices in the room next door, and then a new sound system had started up. I pulled a pillow around my head and wished the world would just go away. At some point, the party next door must have ended, or I was so tired that I fell asleep anyway despite the music. When I woke, I felt blurry and was not so sure where I was. I blinked around and looked at the half-unpacked boxes in the strange room and remembered. I rolled off the bed and went to get breakfast. There were plenty of places to eat with prices that wouldn't break the bank, scattered among the more upmarket joints that offered artisan bread and organic everything. 
After bacon, grits, and a stack of pancakes drowned in syrup, I started to feel human again despite my sleep deprivation, and I opened up my laptop. Classes started in a couple of days, and I had a reading list that I had barely started, but I had a more pressing concern. I needed to find a job to make ends meet. The weekdays would have to be set aside for my studies, but that left nights and weekends for earning money. I had already emailed my resume to hundreds of organizations based in the city, but had either heard nothing back or received a standard, anonymous response. I checked again and there was still no positive news in my inbox. While I wasn't going to give up, I couldn't afford to. And now that I was here in the city, I could take a more direct approach by calling in person into offices and shops and bars and ask to speak with a manager. I set off, full of hope, but after hours of trying, I had achieved nothing. I was left thoroughly deflated. It had been humiliating. With the sun starting to set in the sky, I slumped on onto a bench and tried to think of alternative ways to earn money. Perhaps I could volunteer for medical experiments and risk developing mutant powers. Or perhaps sell an organ. There must have been something that I did not need. I was wondering if leaving home had been a mistake when I noticed a sign in the window of the building opposite. The building at first glance looked derelict and the sign was just about visible under smeared on dirt. It read, Delivery drivers wanted and it was handwritten. It was massively uninspiring but I was desperate. I got to my feet and went to look for an entrance to the building. I found a door around the back in an alley and a broken glass crunched under my feet as I walked up to it. I pressed the intercom and when there was no answer at first I spoke into it. Hey, I saw your sign. There was a crackling sound when the door buzzed open. Here goes nothing, I thought, and I went in. I found myself in a shabby reception area. An air conditioner rattled and flies circled a dusty light bulb that hung from the ceiling. There was a desk in the center of the room with no one sitting at it and an open hatch in the wall behind it. Next to the hatch, there was another door. One presumably that would take you into the rest of the building. I noticed as well that there was a strange smell in that room. A rank odor that made me want to put my hand over my nose and mouth. I was wondering what it was when the door in front of me opened and a man walked in. He brought a wave of the fetid smell in with him. From his odor and the way that he looked, I don't think he must have washed or changed his clothes for months or maybe years. His hair was greased into a side part and his fingernails were caked with dirt. And the worst was to come. You hear about the delivery driver job, he asked and his breath carried across the room and hit me in the face. I should have said, it's all a mistake. Then I could have got out of there and back into the relatively fresh air of the city. Car fumes would have never smelled so good. But I said, yeah. You have your own vehicle? He asked. Yes. I managed to answer while trying not to gag. Good, he said. So when can you start? Through the mental haze caused by the assault on my senses, I wondered if that was it. What about my resume? What about my references? And did he need to get my insurance and license? 
Feeling flustered, I asked, Do you mean that I've got the job? Yep, he replied. After you make each delivery, come back to the depot and I'll pay you cash in hand. I'll go get your first package now. And with that, he went back through the door. His smell lingered. A couple of minutes later, a small brown cardboard box with an address handwritten on it appeared in the hatch. The man peered through after it. I've got just one rule, he said. Do not ever look inside the package. You got that? I gulped and nodded and I picked up the box. Back outside, I took a moment to try and regain my composure. I was both grossed out and delighted. Grossed out because that dude had some serious personal hygiene issues, and delighted because I had found a job, and one for which I would get paid in cash as soon as I delivered the package that I was holding. Time to get busy, I told myself and hurried over to my car. I put the package in the passenger seat and I set off. My maps app directed me to an area of old one and two story houses tucked away behind high high rise offices. They all appeared to be abandoned. There were piles of rubble as well in places that made me think the houses here were in the process of being demolished. That seemed inevitable. Once they were cleared, this would be a prime location for new residential developments. Until then, it was Gloomville and I spent a while driving up and down the old streets, trying to read house numbers. Finally, I found the house that I was looking for and I parked up outside of it. The paint on the wooden boards on the house's facade was peeling away, and all of the windows were boarded up. But the number next to the porch matched the one on the package. Telling myself that this must be the right place, I picked up the package from the passenger seat. It felt sticky underneath. I lifted it up and I looked at the base. A dark stain had spread out over the cardboard box. Something inside of it had leaked. And much worse, whatever it was, it had leaked all over my car seat. I cursed, hoping that I wouldn't have to spend my fee for the delivery on getting my car cleaned. I climbed out of the car and I carried the package up to the house. It was only when I was at the front door that I noticed the package was still leaking. A blob of dark liquid dropped from the base and landed on the ground next to my feet. It wasn't just leaking, it was dripping. I looked back along the sidewalk. It had left a trail of dark droplets between my car and the house. My first delivery was going downhill and fast. I wanted to hand over the package and get out of there before things got any worse. Only if I rang the bell and handed over the package, the person that I gave it to would realize straight away that it was damaged. They would refuse delivery, would start demanding compensation and I wouldn't get paid. I couldn't let the scenario that had played out in my head happen, so I put the package down and then rang the bell and made a hasty exit. It was a lousy plan B, but it was all that I could think of. I was almost back in my car when I heard the door open. I crouched down and looked back. The door hung half open. There was no light showing from inside and at first, and no sign of anybody there. And then a hand reached out. Its fingers were long and bony and its fingernails were overgrown and twisted. These curled, almost claw-like things scraped over the package and then began to draw it in, into the house in the waiting darkness.
The door closed. I was left to crouch in there, wiping away a bead of cold sweat which had trickled down my face. I opened the car door, got in, and started the engine and drove away. It had been a very unsettling experience. By the time that I got back to the depot, I was almost feeling better. When the man who had hired me handed over my payment, I felt a lot better. That's great, I told him, putting the bills in my pocket. Whatever, he growled. Be back here tomorrow night and don't be late. I smiled and headed off. Back in my student housing, I trapezed up the stairs. This time, I didn't even make it through my front door before I heard the loud music blaring out. It seemed to be coming from at least three different directions. Resigning myself to the fact that every night was party night where I now lived, I let myself into my room and I laid on my bed. I got no sleep this time and when I saw the sky lighting with the approaching dawn, I got up and went out to see if I could clean the stain off my car seat myself. As a street cleaner rattled past in their truck, I popped the lock and leaned in. In the glowing light of the new day, I could now see that the stain was dark red and I had an awful feeling that I knew what it was. I had only ever seen this much blood on crime shows on TV, but there it was soaked into the fabric of my seat. My shoulders slumped. No amount of scrubbing with a wet cloth and soap suds would get it out. I got my phone out and I was searching online to try and find out how much it would cost me to get the seat cleaned professionally, when I smelled a pleasant fragrance from behind me. I turned and saw the young woman from the evening before. Her long hair was elegantly plaited and she was wearing running gear. She also looked fresh and full of energy. I rubbed my face. When I had glimpsed in a mirror before coming outside, I had seen the dark patches under my eyes. I was exhausted and I looked it. Yet, she had clearly had a good night's sleep. I was about to ask her how she did that, but she was peering over my shoulder at the passenger seat. Wow, she said. Did you murder your passenger last night? I was shocked at her accusation and said with a catch in my voice, uh, No. And then I saw the cheeky smile on her face. I've got a job as a delivery driver and one of the packages leaked. What was in the package? She asked. I really hadn't considered that. I had been too stressed at the time and I scratched my chin and said, Raw meat, perhaps. Something rare that you can't get in a regular store. Yeah, it could be, she replied and then added. Anyway, gotta get going. See you later. And with that, she jogged away. I went back to looking for a solution to my ruined seat. After 30 minutes of clicking and scrolling, I did not find anything that I felt I could afford so I decided to leave it for a while. I had a lot of other things that I wanted to get done. I needed to arrange my student photo ID, register with the university library, and spend some serious time on my reading list. The day passed quickly and I was feeling pleased with myself as I set off for the depot. I had put a towel over my seat so I wouldn't have to look at it, and out of sight, out of mind, it was working for me as I pulled up outside of the depot. The miasma of stale armpits and worse met me as I was buzzed in. The man was on the other side of the hatch with a package ready for me. 
It was around the same size as the last one, and it looked sturdy enough, and dry. I wanted to ask if it would stay that way, but to do so, it would risk alerting him to what had really happened with my last delivery. So I grinned and said, Great. And then I took the package out to my car. When I saw that the address written on the package was for a regular apartment block in a good district, I felt reassured that this one was going to be a breeze. The journey was easy and I found a parking space on a well-lit street. I checked all sides of the package and relieved to see nothing had leaked out. I put it under my arm and went to find a soon-to-be-satisfied customer's front door. There was no answer on the buzzer for the number and the address, so... I tried a couple more until somebody let me in. The interior of the building was clean and smelled of air freshener and the elevator was working. I caught it up to the fifth floor, stepped out into a pleasant passageway and found the apartment that I was looking for. I pressed the buzzer and knocked but there was no answer. Not a problem I thought. I would leave it outside of the door. I put it down and smiled and the package moved. It rocked slightly from side to side. I blinked and rubbed my eyes. I was tired and I must have imagined that the package had moved. Surely. It rocked again faster this time, and I heard a dull thud come from inside. I frowned. I wasn't imagining this. There seemed to be something inside of the package and it was stirring. A louder thud sounded and the package jerked to one side. Whatever was in there was exerting some serious force. The package rattled and shook. The thudding was constant now, and then the package broke open. It was a small split just below where the address was written on. I instinctively took a step backwards. A second break appeared in the package close to the first and something emerged through it. It was dark and sharp and was moving from side to side. It looked like some kind of limb and another one was beginning to break free from the first split. And another. This one from a tear in the base of the package. As I watched, with a mounting sense of horror, a dozen dark limbs appeared from inside of the package. Some probed and twitched into space. Others found the floor and slowly, uncertainly, they began to crawl. Propelled by the legs of the things inside it, the package began to head towards me. I tried to run away, but I was so freaked out that I tripped myself up and ended up sprawled out on the floor. I looked up and saw the hideously animated package was almost on me. One of its limbs was flickering against my sneaker. I didn't hear the elevator open, did not realize someone had stepped out from it, until I saw arms reaching down and lifting the package up. The limbs went into a frenzy, but now they were clawing at nothing. I looked up into a face that was twisted with rage. What have you done? The man standing over me demanded. This rare specimen is to have pride of place in my collection. If you have hurt it, I will sue you. And with that outburst, he stormed to his door with the package and hurried inside. I was left still, sitting on my backside. How would you rate your delivery today on a scale of 1 to 5? I asked the empty passageway and then began to laugh hysterically. I gave it 20 minutes so that I could calm down before driving back to the depot to collect my money. 
I found the man waiting once more behind the hatch with a new package. I wasn't sure my nerves were up to it and asked, Do you have another driver who could take it? You do the jobs that I allocate to you or you don't get paid anything. He told me with an ugly sneer on his face. Fine, I said under my breath and took the package. I didn't need to look at the address to know where I was taking it because it started to leak blood before I had even gotten it to the car. Muttering to myself, I put it on the towel of the passenger seat and I set off. I drove faster than I normally would and arrived at the house in good time. More of its neighboring houses had been demolished and there was a digger parked up as well. The redevelopment of the area seemed to be picking up pace. I picked up my own pace, hopped out of the car and put the package down outside of the house. And then I pressed the bell and made myself scarce. I was back in the car when the door had opened. I peered over at the darkness revealed, at the pale figure standing in its midst. Its eyes were dark voids in its face, its nose was flattened and its ears rose into sharp tips. It was holding the package in its grotesque grip. Blood was dripping from the package and as I watched, the creature's tongue flickered out and flicked the blood. It smiled, showing teeth that looked like shards of glass, and then it retreated back into the house and closed the door. I was left terrified. My hands were shaking so badly. It took me three goes to get the key in the ignition, and as I drove away, I vowed to never return. My very short career as a delivery driver was over. I just couldn't take the weirdness. When I arrived back at the depot, I didn't tell the maladorous man about my decision. I took the money and I ran. Feeling relieved that I'd never have to see or smell him again, I arrived back at my student accommodation. Even from the roadside, I could hear music blaring out from inside, so I decided to sleep in the car. I closed my eyes and leaned back. I slept restlessly and when dawn had finally arrived, I felt dreadful. I was sitting there aching all over and feeling about 90 years old when somebody tapped on my window. It was the young woman. She looked more beautiful every time that I saw her. I wound the window down and smiled in what I hoped was an irresistibly handsome way. Hey, did you get locked out last night? No, I replied. I'm finding it hard to sleep in my room because of all the noise. She laughed and said, Do you want to come up to my room? I have something that will help. I mean, how could I say no? Her room was chaotic, with clothes, books, and pictures everywhere. She rooted around inside a pile of tops lying tangled on the floor and brought out a small plastic container. Hey, try these, she said. They're noise-canceling earbuds. I have the new model, so you're welcome to have these. That's amazing, I said. Hopefully things will get better now. You seem to be doing okay. I mean, you've got your job. I frowned and told her about the package that had sprouted legs and described the strange figure that I had seen when I dropped off that second leaking package. I expected her to be shocked, but she looked excited. Wow, she exclaimed. That sounds like a vampire and I love them. You have to let me know next time you're going to deliver to it. She gave me her phone number and made me promise to message her. All thoughts of giving up the job as a delivery driver had forgotten. 
I told her that I would and I left her room with a big grin on my face. That night, I headed for the depot building hoping that there would be another package dripping with blood waiting for me. There wasn't. The man smelling rank as ever told me that I had to collect the package from a different location tonight and I would be given the delivery address for it when I did. I had zero enthusiasm for this until he let me know where the collection was to be made. As soon as I was outside, I sent a message. Hey, I'm heading to the vampire's house now. Moments after I pressed send, a reply came. Take me with you. Yes, I thought, and we arranged a place for me to pick her up. Thirty minutes later, I was driving through the night with a beautiful girl by my side. She had brought a cushion with her so she didn't have to sit on the messed up cover of the passenger seat, and her cheeks were flushed with excitement. For my part, I decided to ask her out on a date as soon as I could get the courage, and I was desperately hoping that she would say yes. In the meantime, there was the small matter of a package to collect. I pulled up in my usual place. More houses had been demolished and I guess the house we were going to was due to be knocked down soon. I wondered if perhaps the strange creature who lived there was moving out because of this. I must admit, I didn't truly believe it was a vampire. It was grade A freaky looking but that did not automatically make it one of the undead. Still, I was feeling very apprehensive now the moment to see it face to face again it arrived. I pressed the bell. My gorgeous companion had refused to stay in the car and had come with me. She was so stoked that she could not stand still as we waited for a response. But there was nothing. I was about to press the bell again when she put her hand on my arm and said, Wait. And then she pushed the door. It creaked and opened. Result. She said brightly and stepped inside. I took a deep breath and followed. Bugs with far too many legs scurried out of our way as we walked along a dark hallway. There was a large room at the end of it. I would have been very happy to not go into it, but she was hurrying ahead. She made her way into the room and then came to a halt and stopped. I walked up to her side and I understood why. The room was lit by a single candle in an ornate gold holder. Dark curtains hung over the windows, keeping the outside world away, and there were bones all over the floor. I thought of the packages that I had delivered and my theory that they had held raw meat. It looked like that I had been right and that this feast dripping with blood had been a regular delivery to the creature that had lived here. My companion took my arm and said, Look, in an anteroom, there was a coffin on a table. She walked over to it and looked at the lid. And then she turned around and her eyes were shining as she told me. It's got a note taped to it saying that it's for collection. And there's a delivery address as well. She clapped her hands together and added a delighted. Amazing. I was still not happy about the whole business and said. Okay, well let's get the coffin in the car then. The sooner that we get it delivered the better. Well after we look inside, she said gleefully. I remembered the disgusting guy at the depot's rule about never looking inside a package and said, I really don't think that's a good idea. She wrinkled her nose up in the cutest way and replied, Spoil sport. 
but she didn't ask again and together we carried the coffin out to the car. It just about fit under the back seats and I was relieved when we drove away from the house. Being reduced to rubble was the best thing that could happen to the place in my opinion. The delivery address was in a part of the city that neither of us had ever heard of and I got completely lost. Between the stress of that and the strange package, and still trying to get up the nerve to ask for a date, my gut started to churn and I had to stop off at a diner so that I could use the restroom. I was the only person in the place apart from a tired looking waitress. Once I had visited the restroom, I bought a couple of coffees to go, even though caffeine was the last thing that I needed and that I returned to the car. It was empty. The passenger door was open in one of the back seats. As I came closer, I saw that the lid of the coffin was open as well. I started to feel sick with worry. Had curiosity gotten the better of her, and had she looked inside of the coffin... I peered into the coffin through the car window. There was nothing in there, either. I swore out loud and began to look around frantically, and it was then that I saw the body lying on the ground. It was near a dark corner of the diner, and I hurried over. It was the young woman. I knelt down and touched her face, and two trails of blood ran from cuts on her neck. She had been so full of life, so beautiful, and now she was gone. I began to cry. She must have disturbed the vampire in its coffin and it had lashed out, had fed on her and stolen her life. As I knelt there weeping, I suddenly became aware of movement nearby. I turned, thinking that it might be the waitress, and I saw the vampire crouching in the shadows. Its hideous, bat-like head was tilted to one side and its tongue flickered out. Its mouth hung slightly open and I could see dark red stains on its teeth. You did this. I said his anger flared inside me. You, I screamed. It looked at me and it smiled and then its wings unfurled from its back and it sped into the sky and away. I was nothing to it. And the young woman it had killed was growing cold in the ground next to me. I picked her body up and I carried it over to the car. My mind was racing and I'm not sure why, but I put her in the empty coffin as gently as I could and then closed the lid in the car door. I think I did and not want anybody else to see her like that. I went to sit in the driver's seat. I felt utterly lost and alone and more scared than I ever had been in my life. With dawn still hours away, I desperately tried to think what I should do next. I was still trying to think when I heard the back door click open. I spun around, shocks and cold waves through my body. The lid of the coffin was once more loose and it was empty, and there was someone standing outside the car. Her long dark hair hung down her back almost to her waist. Feeling as if I was in a dream, I climbed out of the car. She turned to me and smiled. Her lips were pale and her fangs razor sharp. Help me, she said in a quiet voice. I'm thirsty. I need to feed. Since that night, I've stayed with her. I watch over her coffin while she sleeps during the day. After dusk, I drive her to places where she can hunt for new victims to sate her bloodlust. I will do this as long as she needs me, because she is my dark mistress, my savage, 
beautiful creature of the night. HelloFresh, your go-to solution for effortless and delicious summer meals. Get ready to reach your goals with calorie-smart and protein-smart options, along with new tantalizing recipes. With HelloFresh, farm-to-table quality is guaranteed, as our seasonal ingredients are picked at peak ripeness and delivered to your doorstep in less than 7 days, ensuring fresh flavor in every bite. Elevate your summer entertaining with HelloFresh's crowd-pleasing eats. Indulge in the flavors of our bratwurst bar with caramelized onions and pineapple relish, or something lighter like a snack board featuring pretzel bites, spiced bar nuts, and hot honey peach jam. Say goodbye to recipe ruts with our selection of 40 weekly recipes catering to even the pickiest eaters. No matter your lifestyle, HelloFresh has you covered. And to get started, go to HelloFresh.com slash MrCreep16 and use code MrCreep16 to enjoy a whopping 16 free meals plus free shipping. Again, that's HelloFresh.com slash MrCreep16. Code MrCreep16 for 16 free meals plus free shipping. HelloFresh, America's number one meal kit. I'm a detective in a major city. This is the strangest case that I've witnessed. Written by Doomed Geek. I was full of fire to make my home city a better place when I joined the police force 20 years ago. My days used to start with me getting up at 6am to go for a run before reporting for duty. Now when my alarm went off, I lay there staring at the ceiling, feeling exhausted and old before my time. I lived alone apart from the cockroaches that scurried across the floor as I dragged myself out of bed. After a quick shower, I found the cleanest shirt that I could and I headed out the door. I reached my desk at the precinct just in time for the start of my shift at 8am. I would have a black coffee and a burger with me. Some cops react to the pressures of the job by going to the gym and exercising obsessively. Some drink, propping up a bar night after night. My thing was junk food. The last time that I ate anything green, it was a pepper that had accidentally found its way onto my meat feast pizza. If you listened carefully, you could probably hear my arteries screaming. I had given up caring and while I worked through my morning burger, I had started my backlog of paperwork. I had recently dealt with a case where the perp believed they were afflicted by lycanthropy. A neighbor who had hammered on the door to complain that the howling was keeping them awake was savagely bitten. I had just started working on the case file when my phone rang. It was a beat cop on the line. He sounded shook up. There's no code for this, he said. It's off the scale weird. What's your location? I growled, unhappy at having my breakfast interrupted. Twenty minutes later, I was crawling through the rush hour traffic. The siren was wailing and my guts were burning. The pool car that I had signed out had no air conditioning. Looked like it hadn't been cleaned for months and did smell like an ashtray. Welcome to my life. The beat cop had given me an address in an old district of the city. It used to be a thriving center for the garment business. Bespoke suits would be crafted and hats that looked like works of art designed. 
Now, a lot of the buildings were boarded up and the ones that were not looked like they should be condemned as well. A patrol car was parked up in front of a shabby facade. A faded sign in the window said that it was a tailor shop. Two cops leaned against the side of the cruiser looking bored. I pulled over and put the engine out of its misery. The back of my shirt was soaked with sweat. I peeled myself away from the seat and I climbed out. The heat felt like it was almost solid. I wiped more perspiration from my forehead as one of the cops stopped leaning on the patrol car and came over. He gave me a dirty look and asked, You the detective? No, I sneered. I'm a model and I'm looking for a catwalk. Now where's the scene? He scowled and pointed at the open door of the tailors with his thumb. I headed that way. Inside, the place was a riot of materials. Rolls of fabrics in a host of different colors, offcuts, lengths of thread, needles, scissors, and sheets of paper with designs drawn on them. They were scattered across every available surface. As I was taking it in, I heard footsteps behind me. It was the cop. The guy running this place was an up-and-coming star in the clothes business, he told me. It was a retro thing and being based in this dive was part of the image. He's been in all the Sunday supplements apparently. First, me and my partner knew about him was when we had seen this real fancy limo parked up outside. We figured it was stolen and then we seen it was getting out. A total A-lister. He was in that movie about the assassin. You know the one where he was tortured by his past. Ah heck, what's his name now? Anyway, he was coming here to get a fancy suit made up. And the tailor is the victim, I asked. Yeah, he's through the back. I went to go see the next big thing in the world of fashion. He was slumped in a chair and there was an expression of utter terror on his cold and dead face. I sighed and put my hand over my nose and mouth. The only attention he would be attracting from now on was from the flies that were already starting to circle his ripening remains. I turned back to the cop and asked, is there any CCTV? Yeah, he replied. A camera back through here. Got the whole thing on tape. There was a monitor almost hidden among yet more fabric. I lined the recording up and I pressed play. There was no sound, just grainy black and white images. The tailor was center scene. He was still alive and working away, cutting through fabric and sketching. He came across as focused and energized even in the brief glimpses captured by the CCTV. And then the film showed him glancing up and frowning. It looked like he had been interrupted. The camera was positioned over the entrance to the premises and was pointing inwards. So while the tailor was cut on film, reacting to whoever had entered and broken his creative flow, I couldn't see anyone. As the tailor appeared increasingly agitated on screen, I expected any moment that I would see the intruder, but there was no one there according to the footage. But as the tape continued, the tailor started to back away. He was holding his hands up in a defensive position and was saying something, the same thing over and over I thought. He was mouthing the words, No, please, no. All the while he was retreating into his room, where he had been found an hour later by a supplier who had called around with a delivery of cloth. The supplier had phoned 911, and the circus had arrived. 
First the beat cops, then me, and next the scene of crimes team. The CCTV film was just coming to an end as they trailed in, carrying cameras and tablets. They didn't need me to get in their way and I had seen enough. I held myself to my feet and headed back out into the fierce heat of the day. The pool car was an oven inside and my backside felt like it was frying as I sat behind the wheel. I cursed, breathed in hot and stale air. This case had strange stamped all over it. I mean the dead guy looked like he had seen a ghost, and the footage backed up that theory. But I wasn't buying that. I only truly believed in things that I could put handcuffs on. I shook my head and started the engine. I needed to eat. It helped me think. And there was a diner not too far from the scene that did a belt-busting brunch. Their deep-fried battered butter was legendary. Later that day, I swung by the morgue. The pathologist was skinny as a rake and always a bundle of energy. I knew from previous conversations that he unwound by running ultra-marathons and ate only raw and organic food. And go figure. I would just have to climb three flights of stairs because the elevator was out of order, and I was breathless and felt as if I was about to puke. To take my mind off this, I turned my attention to the autopsied sewn-up body of the victim on the slab in front of me. There is a second body under a blanket on another slab nearby, presumably the next in the autopsy queue. The pathologist, though, was looking at me. Seriously, he said, you need to do some exercise. I can recommend a program of gentle stretching to start you off. I patted my gut, grinned, and replied, I'm more like a car doc. I just need plenty of grease to keep me running smooth. So what did you learn from slicing and dicing the victim from this morning? Everything I needed to, he answered. And in my report, I will put the cause of his demise as a heart attack. But off the record, I would say that he was scared to death. We've all got to go sometime, I said grimly. I shook his hand. Hey, I'll see you around, I said. The pathologist was already moving on to his next subject, the body on the nearby slab. He removed the sheet, revealing the mottled frame of a middle-aged man. I started to walk away, but as I did, the body sat up. What the? I exclaimed. The pathologist just smiled. Oh, it's nothing, he said. A combination of muscles and gases post-mortem. Happens all the time. I'll just lay this deceased gentleman back down and then make a start on the autopsy. He put his hands on the dead body's shoulders and it opened its eyes. It began to groan. The pathologist stumbled backwards looking horrified. He had clearly never seen this before and neither had I. I watched in morbid fascination as the corpse slowly slid its legs over the side of the slab and got to its feet. It was still groaning, a guttural lament that made my skin crawl. And then it raised its arms and started to stumble forwards. The pathologist stood frozen to the spot, staring at it in wide-eyed fear. He was right in the path of the reanimated corpse, so I grabbed his arm and pulled him after me as I exited the room. I noticed an alarm button on the wall and I pressed it. A siren began to wail and moments later, a security guard sprinted into view with his hand in the holster at his waist. He ground to a halt when he saw the thing emerging from the room. The pathologist yelled at him, 
It's a zombie. You need to aim for the brain. The security guard visibly gulped then, shaking badly, he drew. As a law enforcement officer, I could have done the same, but I did not. There's something wrong here, I said, and stepped in between the security guard and the stumbling, groaning dead man. I loved binging on a new series about the dead out for a stroll in an apocalyptic wasteland as much as the next person, but I wanted to give a reason, a try. I reached out and put my hand on the thing's neck. Yeah, I thought so. I said and turned to the others. It's got a pulse. Lower your weapon. This dude's no deader than you or me. Looking relieved and very nauseous, the security guard complied with my order. The pathologist went to the groaning man and checked his wrist and then shone a light in his eyes. This man was in a deep catatonic state, he said. The doctor at the ER who pronounced got it wrong. And to think I almost cut this poor man open. He shook his head and added, I'll be sending him back. Hey, you're the expert, I replied. Now, if you'll excuse me, I have a date with an extra large stuffed crust with a whole bunch of sides. The pathologist held up his hand and said enthusiastically, If you give me a minute, I'll send you a link to my favorite organic grocer's website. You can taste the soil. I'll give it a miss. I muttered and left the chilled confines of the morgue for the oppressive heat of these city streets. Night had fallen, but that offered no respite. I picked the pizza up and drove back towards the precinct. Sitting in the lot devouring the slices, I thought about the dead man who wasn't dead, and another corpse who wasn't so lucky. His last moments had been filled with terror, and I was still at a loss at how to catch his killer. I used words like lycanthropy in my reports, but in my experience, the cases I worked stemmed from human frailties and flaws. There were a lot of lonely people out there lost in dark places, thinking dark thoughts. And there would be more dead bodies and mysteries to unravel as a result soon enough. In the meantime, I started on the fries. I had not long finished my meal and was trying to summon the strength to go back to my desk in the paperwork when the radio went. It was my captain. He was five years younger than me, a real hotshot, and he did not like me one bit. You enjoying your vacation? He barked on the other end of the line. Because you sure don't seem to be doing any actual police work. I counted to ten before answering. I'm heading back to base now, sir. Yeah, sure you are. Well, don't bother. A new case just came in. It's a freak special. It should be right up your street. I could have told him that my shift was over in an hour. I could have told him to take the case and place it where the sun does not shine. But I pressed transmit and said, I'm on it. After all, what else would I have done? Apart from go home and watch garbage on TV and eat while the cockroaches crawled around. I started the car and pulled back out of the lot. The sidewalks were busy with people heading to bars and restaurants and cinemas or standing around and chatting. They were blissfully ignorant that I was on my way to the scene where a body had been found. I was still five minutes away when the front wheel of the pool car hit a pothole in the road. I heard something crack and it pulled over. The car wasn't going any further. I called it in to request a tow truck and then locked the pile of junk up and walked away thinking, good riddance, 
The body that I was looking for was in an alley. A piece of crime tape showed me the way. It was faded and torn in places from being reused so many times. A cop stood at the entrance to the alley. He was presumably meant to be guarding the scene, but all of his attention was on the screen of a mobile. I could hear the ping of a game being played as I approached. Excuse me, officer. I'm looking for a husk. I left him looking guilty, turned on my flashlight, and went to see what new horrors waited for me. The body lay on its back, 12 feet or so into the alley. Its pale, sunken face stared blindly up at me, and I silently vowed to do everything that I could to bring its killer to justice. I knelt over to see the neck more clearly. There were two puncture marks in the flesh. I would leave the pathologist to find and document all the wounds on the body, and the scene of crimes team to record the rest. They were entering the alley. I had a badge and heartburn but no gloves, so I asked them to go through the victim's pockets. One of the white-suited figures rummaged through the jacket and trouser pockets and then handed over a wallet. There was a driver's license. I had an ID. Another of the scene of crime techs started to photograph the neck wounds. Do you think I should buy shares in garlic? He asked through his mask. I'm the last person that you should ask for financial advice. I told him and then laughed. The fact that there might be a vampire stalking this city had not escaped me. In my experience, it was more likely there was someone who believed there were a vampire, with an overwhelming desire to drink the blood of a fellow human being. I had just seen that they were no less dangerous than one of the true undead. I used the cop's radio to call for a squad car to take me to the address shown on the victim's ID. The dispatcher was not impressed. Their voice crackled in my ear. The Saj is already on the warpath about you abandoning your car. You want to tell them personally that you think the department is running a taxi service. I sighed and tried to think of a single person in the department who liked me. I failed. But feeling sorry for myself would not bring the alley killer to justice. So I ended the call and set off to the nearest subway station. The air at platform level felt like it had all the oxygen drained from it. The carriage, when it arrived, smelled of stale sweat and the other passengers looked disheveled and tired and angry. I blended in well. I resurfaced, 30 minutes later feeling grimier than ever. The victim had lived in a pleasant-looking block. I pressed buzzers until someone let me in and then caught the elevator up. The elevator smelled of air freshener and the walls of the hallway I emerged into were painted into a soothing pastel color. There were no stains, no music blaring out from any apartments, and no smells of food being boiled. I thought of where I lived and I shook my head in despair. The victim had lived in the last apartment on the floor. Hoping this wouldn't be one of those occasions where I had to tell somebody their loved one had met a grisly end, I knocked. There was no sound of movement on the other side of the door, but I heard the door behind me opening. I turned to see a lady looking at me through a narrow gap. The chain was on, a sensible move. This was a nice building, but it was surrounded by sleighs. I shouldered my badge and said, Sorry to disturb you, ma'am, but I'm here about your neighbor. Mark, is he okay? I hesitated. 
the bitter truth might make her clam up. It was cold of me, but I answered. I'm making inquiries, and that's all at this stage. When did you last see your neighbor? She did not look convinced, but said anyway. Oh, okay. Earlier this evening, he was in a good mood and said that he was going out to a bar. He had been down after his wife left him, so I was glad to see him making an effort to socialize. I asked if she knew which bar that he was going to, and she did. I had driven past the place in passing on previous occasions, but had never been in. It looked to be a classy joint for the people who still had hope. Well, tonight, I would be going up market, in the line of duty, of course. I returned to the subway and descended once more into the recesses of the city. It was a circus down there by this time of the night, one where all the clowns were pressure cookies of rage. It was a relief to ascend the broken walkway and step back out onto the street. The bar was across the road from the subway. Light and music spilled out and beautiful people drifted around inside. I trudged towards it, feeling like a feral dog heading towards the salon for pampered pedigrees. The doorman was too busy trying to impress a fake blonde by flexing his muscles to notice me, so I got in without having to show my badge. I headed for the bar, figured that I would start by showing the barman the victim's ID, mugshot, and asking if he had been in tonight. I rested an elbow on the bar and tried to catch the barman's eye, but he was too busy throwing a cocktail shaker around to notice me. And then I became aware of somebody moving into the space next to me. Her auburn hair hung over her shoulders. Her scarlet dress shimmered in the bright lights. She glanced at me and said, you look out of place. I shrugged and replied, I'm an undercover health freak. Her lips curled into a smile as she said, You're funny. Can I buy you a drink? I shrugged and told her, I don't drink alcohol. She arched a perfectly drawn-on eyebrow and murmured, So, your blood is untainted by alcohol. There's no room among all the globules of fat, I thought, but said nothing. She whispered something in my ear. I did as she had asked and I followed her outside, away from the lights of the street into a dark and dank alley, where she draped her arms over my neck and said, Look into my eyes, accept my embrace. And then she smiled, exposing razor-sharp fangs. Whether they were the result of some warped dental treatment or not, I didn't want to give her the chance to bite me with them. I stepped back, showed her my badge, and said, Are you aware that it is an offense to drink the blood of an officer? Strictly speaking, there was no such law, but I was sure that I could find something to charge her with. She laughed and said, You stupid mortal, you cannot resist me or my kin. I became aware of two figures further down the alley moving our way. As they came closer, I could see their pale skin and their fondness for black clothing and the fangs were revealed by their malicious grins. That explained why the victim had been drained of blood, I realized. He had been attacked by the three bloodsuckers, not just one female with a taste for the red stuff. I continued to back away, fear pulsing through my body. I was about to become an all-you-can-drink buffet if I did not do something extreme. They were not carrying, so I was not going to go down that route. 
but I did have another police-issued option, one that would deliver a shocking five-second punch. I took out the X-26. I am walking out of this alley, I told them, and one morning only, I will use this if any of you try and stop me. This brought a chorus of mocking laughter. One of the men said, Only a stake through the heart or the light of day can destroy the vampire. And then he bared his fangs and snarled and leapt at me. I unleashed the barbs. Moments later, he was lying on the ground, twitching and dribbling, and his kin were running away. Well, that proved they were all wannabe vampires and not the real deal. I cuffed the perp and read him his rights. Once he was handed over for processing, I would put out an alert on his accomplices. Dawn was reddening the edges of the sky by the time that I was back at my desk. I started to write up the case then, but the next thing I knew I was being prodded in the back and a sergeant was telling me to wake up. I looked at him with blurry eyes. What's a guy gotta do to get some sleep around here? I asked. I got no sympathy in return. There's been another suspicious death. The sergeant told me, another person has been scared to death. I rubbed my face and said, What's the location? I'll grab a cheeseburger on the way. After a lecture on respecting police property, I was soon back on the road with a triple burger fries and onion rings in the passenger seat. I was driving one-handed so I didn't risk spilling my drink in the car. But the morning rush hour was already clogging the roads and having to slam my foot down on the brakes three times. There was soda on the dashboard and a wheel and fries on the floor. I cursed. I had paid for those. I parked up behind a patrol car that was in front of a fancy-looking coffee shop and extricated myself from behind the wheel. The police car was empty and the coffee shop had a closed sign in the window. I tried the door. It wasn't locked, so I went in and wandered through to the back of the shop and outside into a yard where a cop stood guard over a body. I don't think he's going to get away, I said. The corpse was being kept upright by the wall. Its hand was still positioned as if it was smoking a cigarette, and I could see a filter in its fingers and ash on the ground. Its face was a picture of terror. This cooling slab of flesh had been a man in his thirties once. His brown eyes were wide open and staring into a distance only that they could see. His mouth was parted in a frozen scream. The cop took a sip from the coffee that he was holding. This is the owner, he said. The barista found him like this when he didn't come back from his smoke break. They also said there was no one else in the alley, far as they could see. We took a statement and sent the barista home after getting him to make us a couple of lattes. I gave him a sour look and said, You're all heart. Where's your partner? I'm going to get donuts to go with the coffee. He answered. I told him that he was a credit to the uniform and left him to it. I had two victims now, both seemingly killed by pure fear and I was utterly clueless. The great detective, I thought bitterly, as I got back into the car. I began to wonder, perhaps I should let the captain evict me from the force and leave me on Civvy Street. And then I slammed my hands against the wheel. The thinking this way was not going to help the dead find justice. I started the car and joined the traffic. It was crawling along slower than ever. 
I strained my eyes to see if there was a problem ahead and saw the tops of road signs. There was some kind of maintenance working going on. I figured and tried to sit back and not get too wound up. I had moved a couple of dozen feet when I heard shouting, and then I saw a couple of people running along the road in between the cars. Both wore hard hats and overalls and looked seriously shook up. I got out and grabbed one of them by the arm. I'm an officer, I told him. What's wrong? A monster, he said, struggling to get the words out. In the sewer, it tried to attack us. We only just got out. And then he wriggled free of my grasp and hurried away. This was turning out to be the latest in a long line of lousy days, I thought, as I leaned back into the car and called it in. I could hear the disdain in the dispatcher's voice when he responded by saying, It sounds like the best man for the job is already on the scene, but I'll send back up when there's a unit free. Just love being a part of the team, I said under my breath as I set off on foot through the gridlock traffic. I soon reached an open manhole cover in the middle of the road, surrounded by bullards. I peered down into it. There was no sign or sound of anything strange, and a part of me was tempted to slide the cover back in place and go for eggs over easy, grits and bacon in a diner that I could see just a few minutes strolled away. But what if there was somebody down there? Something, maybe something monstrous. I sighed, it couldn't be allowed to roam free. There were rusted metal rungs leading down into the sewer. Reluctantly, I started to climb down into the darkness. A nauseating smell rose up to meet me and I was gagging by the time that I reached the last rung. I clicked my flashlight on. I was standing on a stone walkway that was precariously narrow and a tunnel stretched out in front of me beyond the reach of the flashlight's beam. Still, I tight-shaped gross hung from the ceiling of the tunnel. I did not even want to begin to think what they might be made of. Below these, a dark sludge flowed slowly into the distance. I wasn't sure how deep this wastewater was and really hoped that I would never have to find out. As cautious as I could, I inched forwards. The sound of traffic on the highway above rumbled through the ground into the sewer and I could hear dripping coming from somewhere. But still, there was no sign of anything unusual. Hoping this was a case of a couple of sanitation workers who had breathed in too many toxic fumes and were imagining things, I decided to keep going for another few minutes and then turn back. The tunnel curved ahead. With my back pressed against the cold wet wall, I crept on, inching around the corner until something ran across my foot. I yelped and then realized that it was only a rat. I watched it scurry away into the distance. It was nothing but my heart was pounding in my chest and I couldn't stand the stench any longer. It was time to call it a day. I shuffled my feet around so that I could make my way back to the metal rungs that would get me out of here. Only another rat was standing in the walkway in front of me. It was looking up at me. Its nose twitched above long yellow teeth and its eyes were vivid points of red in the glare of the flashlight. Scoot, I said and I kicked it. All this achieved was me nearly slipping off the walkway and ending up in the sewage. The rat itself showed no sign of moving. Now, it was a big ugly son of a gun, but I was much bigger and much uglier. Surely it should be frightened of me. I told myself as I worked up the courage to step over it and be on my way. 
I lifted my leg and saw a second pair of red eyes glinting in the beam of the flashlight, and then another and another. I swore. There were dozens of rats crowded onto the walkway now and more in the wastewater. These were swimming through the gunk with their noses just above the surface. There was no way that I could go back the way that I had come. I swiveled back around, desperately hoping there would be another way up out of the sewer not too much further along. My heart sank instantly. There were more rats on this side now as well. I was surrounded and not by dozens of rats, but hundreds. My skin began to crawl with disgust. My guts cramped. I felt like I could not breathe. I was trapped by a writhing mass of rats. In front of me, the rats in the wastewater started to go into a frenzy. They clambered over each other, pushing some under the dank liquid and making some of the rats on the east side fall in. I stared, grotesquely fascinated as something emerged from the water at the heart of this chaos. It was a man. His eyes were bloodshot and his teeth yellow. Rats squirmed on his head and across his shoulders and over his arms as he raised them. Foul water dripped from his skin as he opened his mouth and spoke. Behold the Rat King. What the? I managed to mutter. I am the lord of this underground kingdom, and these are my subjects. He stroked one, especially fat, filthy rat which was draped across his shoulder, and then yapped, he leaned down and kissed it on its lips. Bile rose into the back of my mouth. I spat it out and said, Listen, buddy, I don't care who you think you are, but you can't go around scaring city workers. He laughed, and there was no mistake in the insanity that was bubbling inside of him. How dare you? No one questions the Rat King. My creatures destroy this treasonous intruder. He waved his arms at me, and crazy or not, the rats seemed to be obeying him. They scurried towards me. I was dead meat if I did not act. It was time for the extreme. I launched myself into the wastewater at the self-appointed ruler of the rats, slammed into him with all my weight. I did not know what taking him out would do, but I could think of nothing else. I struck him on the nose as hard as I could. There was the loud crack of bone breaking and an explosion of blood. And then he was falling backwards, knocked out by my pile driver. He lay on his back in the wastewater at the center of a spreading crimson pool. This had all happened in a matter of seconds, and with adrenaline still pulsing through me, I looked around at the rats. As when they had paused and were sniffing and twitching, and then one climbed onto the man's face and bit. This unleashed a tidal wave of rats, teeth bared, and they poured onto the man. I turned away in horror. The king was dead. Long live the feast. I trudged away from the feeding frenzy back to the metal rungs, Dragged myself up and emerged back into the sunlight that felt harsher than ever. I stood there dripping and coughing and squinting at the cops leaning onto a patrol car parked up in the middle of the road. Its hazard lights were flashing making the traffic give us a wide berth. One of the cops grinned. Well look who it is, the sewer squad. His partner burst out laughing. With zero dignity left I squelched away. The pool car was where I had left it, but I kept on walking. If I sat in it, the car would need more than a service clean when I returned it. The upholstery would need burning. I took the subway back to my apartment instead. 
I was the person that everybody leaves a distance around. One very long shower and a change of clothes later, I went back to retrieve the car and returned to the precinct. I was feeling traumatized by my recent experience in the sewer, so bad that I only had the appetite for a bucket of chicken. When my order arrived, I typed up the details for the case file with one hand and picked crunchy portions of a southern fried out with the other. I would be investigated for what had happened in the sewer, but was not currently being treated with suspension. My phone rang and I answered with a wary, What now? The answer did not help my bleak mood. Forty minutes or so later, I was walking into a mall. The outlets were shabby and sold endless variations on garbage that nobody really needed in their lives, and it was packed with people loaded down with shopping bags. The victim had been found in a sneaker store on the ground level. There was a cop standing in front of the tape sealing off the entrance. He looked like he was about to fall asleep. I'll lift the tape myself. I don't want to tire you out. Ignoring the filthy look he gave me when I went into the store, I could see a CCTV camera above the sales counter, and I would check it as soon as I could. But first, I had a body to meet. The store manager couldn't have been much more than 21. He had a name badge with his job title below and a second badge saying, Ask me about our bargains. Hey Brad, you got anything that can put a spring in my step? And then I sighed. Oh, poor kid. His skin was waxy and his expression fixed. The terror that had killed him was preserved for all time, or at least until this flesh had rotted away in the grave. I took a step back and looked around the store. There was no one else there apart from me and the victim, the third to have lost their life in this way. I felt lost, utterly mystified. Somebody was responsible for these crimes. Who are you? Why are you doing this? The silence taunted me. I sighed and turned to leave, and as I did, I felt the temperature in the room suddenly drop. Something very strange was happening. I once more scanned the room even though it was clear that there was nobody there. Apart from me and the victim, and a grey mist that was drifting towards me, I didn't know where it had come from. As I stared at it, mesmerized and petrified, a shape started to form inside the mist. It was a face. There were voids where its eyes should have been and a dark mouth opening, and spectral hands forming and reaching out towards me. Sweat ran down the back of my neck and my legs felt like they were about to give way. What are you? I asked. Up until this moment in my career as a detective, I had been able to explain away everything strange that had happened to me. But this, it defied reason. The thing was coming closer, its grotesque form becoming clearer and clearer. I could see the dirt in its cracked fingernails, the rotted stumps of its teeth and a grey tongue flickering. It was trying to speak, I realized, even though my mind was clouded by terror, I could tell. What is it? What are you trying to say? It peered at me with its empty eyes and then its fleshless lips moved once more and it said, Help me. The words were clear. They were an ice-cold breeze against my skin. Help me, it said again. I looked at its face, at the shifting, twisting expression before me and I saw something that I understood. I saw fear. I saw a being that was terrified as I was. 
realization cut through me. You didn't mean to kill them. You just wanted somebody to help you. Its voice reached out once more. Help me. I took a deep breath and said, Hey, I get it, but I'm still going to have to bring you in. The precinct had been built over the shell of the old police station and its basement was a warren of empty rooms and dusty and dark corridors. As I walked down them using my flashlight to show the way, I did not look behind me. I could feel the drifting presence was still there. I did not know how it had followed me as I drove back to the precinct but it had. It was clearly coming willingly and I believed. It somehow understood that this was the right thing to do. And now as I reached the place that I had been looking for, I could sense that it was waiting just over my shoulder. I took out the ancient set of keys that had been put away in a box in a storeroom and unlocked the door. The disused cell had not been opened in more than half a century, and I doubted that anybody else had been down there in years. It was quiet and deserted, a place where the dead could find a kind of peace. I stepped to one side and felt a cold wind pass by me. I looked into the cell and saw a sad smile in an ethereal gray mist. I raised my hand to say goodbye, closed the door and then walked away. I had a case file to write up. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah. Oh. Sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right, ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchases, overprohibited by law, 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. I clean up hazardous chemical spills. They're lying about Ohio. Written by Random Appalachian 468. Don't trust Elsar. If you take nothing else from this post, then spread those words everywhere. Share it, tweet it, paint it on the freaking walls. Someone has to do something. Somebody has to stop them before they go too far. I know it sounds like some crazy conspiracy theory. I know that most of you won't believe me, but I swear that they're real. Real and dangerous. My name is Greg Burkitts. They already know who I am, so there's no point in the whole fake name thing now is there. Before it all went wrong, I used to work for a little construction company in Tennessee. My wife Sasha and I had an apartment. We were making ends meet, even if just barely, and we were trying to have a kid. We both knew that it would make our lives ten times more hectic, but we didn't care. Some people might think that that's stupid, but when you're with the person that you love, your perspective changes. 
I wanted to be a dad in the worst way, and every time that I saw Sasha paging through a pregnancy book or shopping for baby clothes online, it made us both giggle like excited school children. One day, our boss had called the entire crew together and handed out pamphlets detailing an offer made by some oddball group called the Black Crow Foundation. With all the industrial accidents that had been happening around the country lately, the foundation wanted to help keep America's waterways and air pollution free, but they needed manpower, especially men who knew their way around power tools. For such help, the massive nonprofit would pay each man $250,000 for one month of work at various chemical cleanup sites around the country, with all personal protective equipment provided for us. You read that right. A quarter of a million bucks, post-tax, for just 30 days of work. Our boss checked the group out thoroughly, called government registration offices, even met with their attorney all to ensure that it wasn't some elaborate scam. Even the army sent out a high-ranking officer to vouch for them. In the end, the boss band told us with the biggest grin that I had ever seen him wear that the BCF was real and gave us the green light to sign up. Everybody did, including me. After all, for that much money, I mean, who wouldn't? Besides, Sasha and I were getting by, but as soon as she got pregnant... I knew that I would need a lot more money to keep my family warm and fed. Call me what you will, but I love my wife and I wanted to give her everything. I would have gone even if they only had offered 50000 As Sasha was naturally both thrilled and skeptical when I had broke the news to her. For a price so steep, she reasoned that there had to be a catch. But we both knew to throw such an opportunity aside on suspicion alone was ludicrous. We might never get this kind of chance again. So I bid her an emotional goodbye, packed my bags, and got on a bus provided by the foundation, bound for my pre-selected worksite. Several days later, I found myself slogging through the forests of southern Ohio, tired and missing home, while the overcast sky wept curtains of continuous rain. My rubber boot slid on the mud and I trapped. Hey, careful. 36 caught me under my right arm and kept me from falling on my face. You don't want to rip your suit. You mean nobody wants to see me end up like seven. Raindrops pattered down on the yellow plastic hood over my head. Each tom-tom of liquid rhythm, a stark reminder of just what a torn suit could entail. 24, you alright? The sharp voice of R-11 barged from the front of the column. His olive-covered rubber overalls matched the gloomy surroundings of the Appalachian foothills, and the skeletal trees dripped cold rain onto us both with indifference. I eyed the shiny black rifle in his gloved hands and straightened up. I'm fine, we just slept. R-11 stepped closer to me, and his wary gaze searched my burden from behind his gas mask. Equipment check. The rest of the column froze, all eyes on me. 36 and R-11. The other guards shifted on their feet in uncomfortable stamps, stroked their rifles with nervous thumbs and scanned the trees. My fellow workers in their yellow suits stood motionless 
all waiting to see if I had made some dreaded mistake, one that would spell my immediate removal. Why do they all have to stare like that? Doing my best not to sigh in annoyance and embarrassment, I unshouldered my bulky pack and balanced it on one knee. All in order, sir. Nothing's broken. R11 glared hard at me and his narrowed eyes traveled the length of my suit with meticulous scrutiny. No one moved and aside from the pattering rain, not a sound could be heard. A few yards away, R16, one of the other guards, flexed his grip on his rifle and took a step my way. Please God, I didn't do anything wrong. My suit isn't ripped. I feel fine. I didn't drop anything. Clear. R11 let his shoulders slacken and took one hand off his rifle to give me an encouraging clap on the arm. Hang in there and watch your step all right. It's not much further. With that, 36 helped me pull my pack over my shoulders again and the column shuffled onward. Grateful to be out from under the hawkish watch of the guards, I put my mind to breathing under my tight-fitted respirator and tried not to think about Seven. With the dull gray sky above empty of any birds and no wind to speak of, the squelching of boots in the mud and muffled breathing under protective masks and the creak of rucksack straps echoed like cannon shots. I couldn't smell anything other than the chlorine sting of my rubber mask. My dry throat cried out for water, but I knew that we wouldn't be allowed to drink anything until we had made it to the site. 36 hefted his pack higher and his broad shoulders ahead of me, and I took a moment to study him. As with all the others, I didn't know his name and he didn't know mine. All we had to go by were numbers given to us at random the first day that we had showed up. That had been by design, and as far as I knew, even the guards with their green suits, black guns, and the ominous R before their code numbers didn't know one another's names. None of the guys from my old job in Tennessee were at this site, and I had a feeling that this too was deliberate. Yet of all the workers so far, 36 seemed to be the only one who wasn't spooked by the bizarre secrecy of the operation. He reminded me of my father, at least twice my age and a head taller, with silver hair and a warm smile that didn't reflect the suspicion the rest of the crew had emanated. In fact, 36 seemed to be the one person in the entire operation who never drew any attention, no matter what he did. When he had somehow found out about my birthday on the second day at base camp, 36 had miraculously produced an old-style Hershey bar as an impromptu gift. Even the straight-laced colonel had been too shocked at seeing me with a retro candy bar to yell about it though he had doubled the guard around camp afterward. If they would just let somebody go into town for better food, chocolate wouldn't be so rare. I mean, seriously, they're paying us a stupid amount of money just to be here. Does the colonel really think that we would run off? The only guy I know of without a number, and he's got an enormous stick shoved up his. We're here. I almost ran into 36 and my heart did a nervous flip and halted at his words. The rest of the column filled into the edge of the clearing behind me and one by one ground to a standstill. 
the squelch of boats die into a solemn silence. Glad for the reprieve and curious, I shuffled aside to peer around 36 into the worksite for the first time. Whoa. It sat nestled between a grove of pines like a great sleeping dragon of steel, with the prow jutting out over a defilade, and the stern hunched against several limestone boulders. The massive propellers hung a good 15 feet above the ground, and the radio antennas rose high into the slate gray sky above the dense trees in rigid lines. All around, the green pines stood bent or broken from the weight of the thing coming down on them, and ripples in the bulky steel hull showed where the craft's algae-lined skin had slammed into the ground. I blinked hard and took a step forward, almost unable to believe my own eyes. Is, is that a battleship? Eyes on me. A cold, familiar voice cut through the tension, and the others broke their wide-eyed stares to find the colonel perched on the hood of a nearby army truck, dressed in his own olive drab protective suit. From where I stood, I couldn't see the colonel's eyes behind his plastic gas mask of visor, but the stern caution in his voice, the way that he didn't completely turn to face us, as if afraid to take his eyes off the warship, made ice run through my blood. This is the work site. You will work here from 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. every day. You will stay in your assigned work teams and report any new findings directly to the guard force. Under no circumstances are you to take anything from this area for personal use. Such actions will result in immediate removal. Am I understood? Seven's manic scream filtered through my memory, along with the echo of the gunshot that ended it. I nodded along with everyone else. Good. The colonel waved his gloved hand at the landlocked vessel, and I could have sworn that I caught his voice tremble ever so slightly. Our guard forces have already swept both the ship and the surrounding area for security threats. Your job is to take radiological and magnetic readings, as well as gather all loose items inside the ship for collection. Scanning teams will move in first, then the evidence teams. All recovered items will be bagged and placed in secured containers, before being loaded out of the trucks here. He pointed to the row of waiting diesel trucks against whom leaned several more soldiers in green chemical suits all carrying rifles. Any questions? You mean like how did a battleship end up in the middle of nowhere, Ohio? But still, I didn't raise my hand and nobody else did either. Something about this rubbed me wrong. The air tasted metallic through my mask, and a cold sensation rippled down my spine like water over the bones. It occurred to me that ever since arriving at the base camp a few miles away, I had yet to see a bird or any other kind of animal in this general vicinity. The lack of noise had been unsettling then, but now it made my stomach churn. I risked a glance over my shoulder at the way that we had come. My gaze met R-16s and he along with the rest of the guard force stared back from their line drawn across the trail, weapons at low ready. Sweat started to roll down my armpits and I tried to breathe slow to calm my panic. They're just securing the perimeter, that's all. The colonel said that we get to leave at 6pm. They're just here for our protection. 
Relax. 36's muffled whisper startled me from my frantic thoughts. They don't want to shoot anyone. They're as nervous as you are. Gripping the straps of my pack, I swallowed a sour-tasting lump in my throat. Glad that he couldn't see my doubtful wince behind my respirator. If you say so. Ahead, the colonel checked his watch and threw another murky look toward the looming battleship. Right, if there aren't any questions, team leaders, take charge of your units and get to work. Light trained yellow automatons, 36 myself and the rest of the workers unshouldered our heavy packs and began to ready various pieces of equipment. Some had hammers, drills, handheld gas torches, and battery-powered saws. Others, like my team, had Geiger counters, electromagnetic detectors, and enough cameras to fit out a library in North Korea. Up until now, the exact details of our job had been kept a secret by the higher-ups, who gave us vague replies whenever we had asked. Even though it made more sense as these seconds had ticked by, I didn't feel any better about it. I picked up some sort of handheld meter and noticed a few words stenciled on the side and faded, smeared black letters, as if somebody had tried to scrub them off but it failed. Property of the Environmental Liminal Space Alleviation and Reduction Program. My brow furrowed. Elsar, I thought we were working for the Black Crow Foundation. Perhaps this was some sort of hand-me-down piece of gear donated by somebody else. Nine and I will take the readings. Twenty-four, you and fifteen will record. My team leader, Eleven, adjusted the black nylon strap and his side-slung Geiger counter and broke me from my train of thought. Thirty-six said nothing, silent and content with his large flashlight. Our team was the only one with five members, and for some reason... Eleven never remembered, 36 in any of his checks or briefings. It always bothered me, but not enough to say anything since, 36 never seemed to mind. I wasn't that close with the team anyway, 36 being my only friend in camp. In fact, I had seen the others so infrequently that in this moment, I couldn't quite recall what they looked like without their suits on. How are we getting in? Fifteen visibly shook and his gloved hands almost dropped the camera he held twice. Eleven jerked his head at another team that lugged a large roll of rope netting toward the ship. I figured we'll climb up the side. No way we're cutting through all that armor. Not without bigger cutting torches. To my left, Nine swiveled his hooded head to examine our tiny group. So we're just not going to talk about the fact that there is a literal battleship in the middle of the woods. His voice rang out louder than he likely had intended, and all but 36 froze. 11, 15, and I all glared at 9, our eyes darting toward the nearby guards. None looked our way, but still my skin crawled. That was way too close. As if he thought the same thing, 9 let his shoulders slump in a sheepish, uncomfortable apology. Later, Eleven hissed behind his respirator and rolled his deflated rucksack up in a tarp to keep the rain from soaking it further. The rest of us followed suit, and with our gear shouldered, we headed for the beach to steal warship. 
In a broad line, our team moved along with the other scanners and swept the ground with our detection equipment for any signs of abnormality. I carried a small notepad on a clipboard, a camera mounted on my left shoulder and a special nylon harness. Fifteen recorded nine's electromagnetic readings, and I took down the radiation levels from eleven. Thirty-six walked along beside me with his oversized flashlight and said nothing. Point six, point three, point five. Eleven droned on, his voice almost as automated as the clicking counter in his gloved hands. Nominal, nominal, nominal. I scratched the numbers down with my pen and tried not to look up at the ship that loomed ever closer. Per our brief instruction on the equipment, radiation levels were normal for the most part. Nine couldn't find anything remotely strange about the electromagnetic fields in this area. Yet in my mind's eye, I could see Seven's contorted face, hear his inane screams, and I shivered. All around, the scattered branches from the trees that the ship had crushed poked into the sky like skeletal fingers, as if silently trying to warn us away. An icy sensation ran down my back and I imagined them reaching for me, through silent screams a strange static that rang in my head. It escalated into a roar so that my ears itched and the breast stuck inside my windpipe like it had been glued there. For a split second, the noise crashed in waves against the inside of my skull, along with the low, monotone beeping, almost like a rhythm or a pattern. Something grabbed my shoulder and I almost jumped out of my skin in fright. Thirty-six met my frightened gaze and pointed with his flashlight ahead of me. Stay focused, you have to climb now. The massive iron ship squatted not yards away, its thick rivets coated in fresh surface rust, a pine needle stuck to its smooth sides. The red paint from beneath the waterline chipped and peeling. All the scanning teams stood in line at the side of the ship and gaped up at it. Though with their masks on, I couldn't see their slack jaws. In somber reflex, the first team busily prepared two pneumatic launchers to fire grappling hooks onto the tall gunwales. One of the other scanners, three, slogged through the muck to eleven. We're taking the bridge, and teams two and three are on the upper decks. I need you guys to go with teams five and six to the lower levels and sweep them out, okay? Eleven threw a sideways glance at the battleship and then back at the line of green-clad soldiers far to our rear. They checked it right. Three's eyes held the same cynical resignation behind his protective mask as Eleven's. They did, but I don't think we'd be wearing this garbage if it was completely safe. So stay on your toes, alright. Radio me if anything goes wrong. Yeah, like that would help. Nine muttered and I snorted in agreement beneath my own mask. Chunk, chunk. Both pneumatic grapples shot into the air and landed with resounding clangs on the deck of the old warship. As soon as their metal hooks snagged the ship's railing, the advance team unfurled a long brown cargo net and hauled it up the slippery steel by the ropes. It reminded me of the old photographs that I had seen in my school days. Black and white visages of men clamoring over the sides of these mighty iron titans, loaded down with weapons and gear to charge into the unknown surf of war. 
How strange was it that we similarly loaded down with gear and apprehension, now strove to surmount those same nets and rails, to discern why this vessel existed here at all. Alright, let's move. Three called from the foot of the cargo net, doing his best to shout in a full-face respirator. Hands on the verticals, feet on the horizontals. Three points of contact at all times. And for God's sake, don't look down. My heart leapt into my throat, but I swallowed hard and sloshed through the rain after the others toward the net. I had never been very good at climbing in gym class, and the rope would be soaked with the incessant rain by the time that my turn came. A fall from that height would mean broken bones at minimum, and who knew what contaminants lay undiscovered on the ground. All it took for seven was falling asleep with his headphones on four miles away. We don't even know what we're dealing with now, do we? No one does. The promised 250k payment for this job struck me as pitiful now, as I stood at the threshold of whatever monstrosity the authorities had stumbled upon in this desolate stretch of Ohio's wilderness. I thought of Sasha and our jubilant plans for when I returned home. I had been so proud to be able to provide that much for us, after two years of scraping by paycheck to paycheck. If she only knew where I stood now, I doubted my darling wife would even want the money anymore. Eleven and fifteen scaled the net, followed by nine and myself. Thirty-six climbed right next to me as calm and cool as if this were an everyday occurrence for him. I shook like a leaf. My heart rammed itself against my chest, and the muddy soles of my rubber overboots slid on the net with cruel ease. Almost there. Thirty-six grunted from his place on the netting. You're doing fine. Yeah, I wanted to sound carefree, but my hands trembled so hard that I felt like I stood on a giant, oily washing machine. My palm missed the next handhold and everything went into slow motion. Around me, the entire world jerked downwards and my extended right boot missed its mark thanks to my backward tumble. In a panic, I squeezed my eyes shut, my lungs closing in terror. A quick strong weight crushed the air from my chest, and I stopped so hard that my teeth clacked together. Dude, you okay? I opened my eyes to find 15 and 36, each had a hand on my 9-line camera harness. Their quick thinking, the only thing between me and a 60-foot drop. Scrabbling for the net, I didn't breathe until I had all four limbs safely back on the thick webbing. Yeah, thanks guys. Fifteen cocked his head to one side, his voice confused. Um, okay, good thing you're lighter than you look. Thirty-six chuckled and waited for me to crawl up beside him again. Come on, it'll be drier inside. I don't care if it's soaked as long as I can't fall, I'll take it. Once my legs swung over the steel rail of the ship and my feet hit the deck, I let out a long sigh of relief. Ah, uh, there he is. Nine slapped me on the back, his tone warm and teasing. Almost lost you. Good thing Fifteen is dummy strong. Or just strong. Fifteen shook his head at Nine, but I could tell the praise it pleased him. Seriously though, Twenty-four, don't do that again. 
Sure thing. I gave him a thumbs up, though my knees knocked beneath my suit. Eleven waved us over his Geiger counter in hand, and his green eyes betrayed a concern that made me forget about my near-death experience. Nine, get your scanner out. Nine unbuckled his bulky electromagnetic scanner from its place on his harness and pointed it over the ship. For the first time in the brief period that we had worked together, Nine seemed speechless. So, you're seeing it too. Eleven kept his voice low and all around the deck, I noticed the other teams clotted together, talked in hushed and concerned whispers. There's no way the rain did this. These are waterproof. It has to be the ship. What is it? Fifteen stuck his head over Eleven's shoulder, too curious to be afraid. Eleven held up his device and my gut soured. Nine's electromagnetic scanner was having what amounted to be a mechanical seizure, where in one second it flew off the charts on high readings, and the next it dropped down to nothing at all. Eleven's Geiger counter, on the other hand, showed a radioactive detection, but not in a consistent pattern. It didn't spike randomly like Nine's readings, but pulsed in a rhythmic, almost a synchronized beat like an irritated heart monitor. The fifteen and I stood frozen, too stunned to record the rapid-fire measurements. Eleven tapped the side of his counter with frustrated knuckles but couldn't get it to stabilize. I'll let three now, and he'll radio back to the colonel. Maybe he'll pull us out. Sit tight, guys. The instant that Eleven walked away, Nine turned to us and cast a few furtive looks around the deck. Something isn't right. I was told this would be a chemical cleanup job, not some naval version of Chernobyl. And how on earth did they get this thing way out here anyway? They couldn't have. Fifteen crossed both arms in his typical discomfort at anything that resembled a threat to normalcy. It has to have been an accident. Maybe there was a flood or something. Nine stead both hands on his hips in indignation. A flood? Look around, man, we're miles away from the nearest major river, and at least two states away from the ocean. It didn't float here. Besides, did you see how those guards acted? They don't even want to get close to this thing. I leaned back over the railing and from my high place atop this strange vessel, the line of soldiers in the distant tree line looked like little olive drab ants. Maybe they don't know either. After all, if they knew, why hire us? Why pay money for something that they could do themselves? So where did this hunk of junk come from then? Nine's question remained unanswered. As Eleven strode back into our circle, his fists bawled. He beckoned the four of us closer and spat between angry and gritted teeth. Three wants to pull out, but the colonel said no. I guess radiation isn't at lethal levels, so he wants us to finish our scans and help the evidence team start cleanup. So here's what we're going to do. We go down and get our scans done as quick as possible. Once we're finished, we radio three and head for the ground again, where it's safe. 
If the colonel wants, he can come help us shovel radioactive bolts for all I care. But I'm not getting cancer 40 years too soon. While he sits on his tail in a nice dry tent. You got it? I nodded along with the others, both emboldened and unsettled at Eleven's defiance. I didn't want to risk sterility via irradiation, but I still remembered how the colonel had dispatched Seven without so much as blinking an eye. Suppose he ordered us back on the boat at gunpoint. None of us had any guns and even if we did, there were far more soldiers than workers. Sasha and I couldn't have children if I got shot. Three led his team to the bridge and I trailed behind Eleven, awed at the sheer size of the ship. It seemed to be a huge island of metal and I racked my brain to try and remember how long my grandfather's minesweeper had been during his service in the Korean War. It's an Iowa class. 36 strode behind me as we went down a long set of iron stairs into the lower decks of the ship. One of the biggest battleships that America ever built. They say the guns were so powerful that a full broadside with all four turrets would crater the surface of the ocean and expose the hull right down to the keel. I clicked on the headlamp built into my hood and swept its bright white beam over the bulkheads of the vessel. Wow, I wonder what this one was called. Seraphim. Nine waved back from the dark corridor at the foot of the stairs and tapped his gloved hand on a circular light preserver on the wall. USS Seraphim. My brow furrowed and I clanked down the rest of the metal stairs in silence. History had been a side hobby of mine for years, but I had never heard of the USS Seraphim. Not in any books or documentaries. Granted, I was no professor, but with such a big ship, I figured that I would have heard of it somewhere. Yeah, especially from Grandpa. He knew tons of ships, and this thing should have been around for the Korean War. Weird. Down two flights of narrow steps we went, through oval-shaped metal bulkhead doors and claustrophobic shadowy corridors. In the dark interior of the battleship, our headlamps illuminated clean hallways, fresh paint on the steel, and even scuff marks on the floor from shoe polish rubbed off boots. Blue tin cups sat on desks, still brimming with coffee that had gone cold, and the paper manuals lay open at antiquated control posts. It seemed as if the sailors of the USF Seraphim had left the ship only a few days ago, everything frozen in time. Did the soldiers clear out the bodies? Nine's voice called in the dark expanse of a third deck passageway, his scanner still spasming. Eleven's Geiger counter thumping away at every step. Or am I somehow missing the corpses of thousands of sailors? Eleven too acted uninterested in his counter now, that we were deep inside of the ship and peered into the various small compartments that we passed by with caution, only to find abandoned workstations, empty bunks, and ancient equipment of war. I doubt it. They're having us do all the heavy lifting. Besides, you see any blood? There's not even a scrap of loose clothing. Maybe it's a trick. 
Fifteen glanced behind us and his dark eyes darted back and forth in paranoia. They could be testing some kind of secret weapon on us or something. My cousin lives an hour away from here. He's been hearing some crazy stuff coming from Barron County. Maybe the government is pretending to be a non-profit for some kind of experiment. Or, Nine poked his head into a room and searched the abandoned space with his light. Somebody else put this thing here to draw us in, like a mousetrap with cheese. Who, aliens? Fifteen tried to sound incredulous, but his gloved hands shook with their clipboard and pen, his headlamp wavering as well. Nine shrugged and kicked at a stray pebble from Eleven's muddy boots. I don't know, you remember Seven's meltdown. He was screaming about a long dark road falling from the sky in voices. I'm telling you, this thing didn't get here on its own. It was put here on purpose. It doesn't matter how it got here. Eleven checked his counter. But from the way his shoulders hitched in anxiety, I wondered if he didn't secretly agree with one of their theories, or both. The sooner we get this over with, the sooner that we can leave. As long as no one gets hurt, I don't care if the aliens in the government have a top secret meeting in this irritated rust bucket. And with that, Eleven moved off down the central corridor, followed by Nine and an uneasy Fifteen. And chafing at being left in the rear yet again, I picked up my boot to step through the next bulkhead after them. A beeping sound. I whirled around and stared off into the dark corridor on my left. It came again. My nerves tingled, and I realized that it wasn't from Eleven's counter, nor Nine Scanner. None of us had cell phones, thanks to the colonel confiscating them after Seven's demise. Nothing that we had with us could have made that sound. Garbled radio static, followed by more monotone beeps echoed faintly from somewhere deep inside the darkness, and it sent chills running down my spine. The ship's lights and power weren't on, and without the massive oil-fired engines producing current, nothing mechanical in this iron behemoth should have worked. Am I hearing things? Should I say something? What if the others think I'm going crazy, like Seven? It's close by. Thirty-six walked up beside me in the beam of his extra-large flashlight, probed the blackness of the unexplored hallway like a white laser. Come on. I opened my mouth to protest, but I stopped myself. 36 had never steered me wrong and saved my life at least once today. Besides, we were supposed to report any strange activity to three, and this counted as strange in my book. Maybe if I was the one to report something unusual, the colonel would give me a bonus, or at least a phone call home to Sasha. With how close it sounds, we can check it out and catch up with the others before they even notice that we're gone. Taking a deep breath, I cast one last cautious glance at the others and pursued a 36 down the side hall. If all goes well, this will be the last time that you'll hear from me. I've been preparing for days now, planning routes with Sasha, stealing a few license plates from a local scrapyard and pulling as much cash as I can without arousing suspicion. It's a shame, really. 
Most of the 250k in my bank account will stay there untouched, since there's no way that I can take it all and not alert Elsar. They've been tailing me ever since I left the work site, and I know they're monitoring my bank account, but I can siphon out enough to get us far from our apartment to a new home, a new life, and a fresh start. Sasha is out cold, curled up under her favorite fuzzy blanket in bed, and I don't want to wake her until I have to. I've been slowly moving our sleep schedule one hour at a time over the past few days, so that by the time I'm ready to put my plan into motion, it'll happen when the people watching us least suspect it. So for now, I sit here at my desk, typing this out with the shades drawn and the doors locked. Once this is over, it's time for a few hours of shut-eye, and then a drive, nap, eat, and repeat. Until then, I'll pour as much as I can remember into this dusty old laptop, with the hopes that someone out there can use this information for good. After leaving the others, I followed a 36 further and further into the dark interior of the ship. More long, tight passages snaked between thick steel bulkheads, some with painted warning signs, others with cheery navy posters or even the occasional pinup girl. Something about the way they watched us from the old paper unnerved me. The smiles strained, the irises dark and unfeeling. Silence permeated the air, only broken by our footsteps, and the footsteps of the other teams echoing through the metal hull from all over the ship. Every breath I took became an abomination, some horrible misdeed that would surely bring judgment raining down on my head like the massive shells from the battleship's main guns. Just relax. You're on edge because of that garbage that Nine was saying. Talk to 36. That always calms you down. So, I cleared my throat and squinted into the dark with nervous caution. You think it was aliens? 36 laughed, a booming, fatherly chuckle that rang down the empty halls of the Seraphim. No, 9 and 15 have colorful imaginations, but I'm afraid they're both mistaken. Reassured and curious by the confident way that he spoke, I fell into step with 36 and began to ignore the murky doorways that we passed on either side. So, what's your theory? He paused in an intersection and met my inquisitive eyes with his gray ones. Have you ever heard of the term equilibrium? I frowned beyond my gas mask. Isn't that like balance? Exactly that. 36 went right down a corridor lined with big pipes that ran horizontal to the floor. Balance in all things. Take a ship, for example. It needs balance so that it doesn't roll over on the water. So you add weights to make it sink lower into the water, but not so much that it actually will sink. Your objective is to float, but in order to float, you sometimes have to sink. Stepping over another bulkhead threshold, I blinked at a burst of lightheadedness and trailed after him. But how does that get a ship into the woods? My perception of sound had started to fade, and I noticed that my headlamp had grown dimmer, 
though 36's flashlight had not. A familiar static crept up in my brain again, and I almost didn't catch 36 making a left turn at a set of downward stairs. If an apple falls from a tree, does it go up or down? Down. I grimaced at a slight hum in my ears, but could only shake my head at it in irritation, since the suit hood blocked my fingers from checking my ear canals. Indeed, 36 descended further into the bowels of the ship, my light flickering to a pitiful gasp, while his stayed bright as a shooting star. Nature seeks balance, and when things are out of balance, it restores them in the only way that it knows how. But what happens if the curtain of reality, the fabric that holds together what you know of as real, tears? Things slip through, fall out of this reality and into another. An imbalance is created. And so nature must do what it does best. Restore balance. Hush static turned to thunderous waves in my skull that demanded to be released, and my ears itched so bad that my head hurt. Still, I stumbled along after 36, my headlamp going out, with only a soft voice and blinding white flashlight to guide me. 36 ran an affectionate hand over the walls, as though exploring an old family home. The crew of this vessel didn't intend for this to happen any more than the soldiers outside intended for them to crash landed here. But something equally massive must have fallen out of this world in order for a ship this size to fall into it. However, it seems the crew stumbled through a different rift than these seraphim. And for that, their world lies in peril. At the hall's end, he ducked into a large steel door the size of a pickup truck, and my eardrums rippled with roars of undulating static. My mind reeled, bombarded by eerie screams of a strange warbled fuzz, and ice clogged my veins in a belated form of confusion. Yet in the midst of my mental fog, something had pierced the chaotic storm like a beacon in the night. The beeping. The sounds, I hear the sounds again. I leaned against the bulkhead for support. My legs fell asleep and a numbness inched up my body with slow but malicious progress. It took every ounce of strength that I had to lift my feet, which seemed to weigh a thousand pounds, and drag myself into the room behind 36. Cold air drained my body of heat and every joint locked up with stiffness. My vision blurred and I saw Sasha's warm smile, her dancing blue eyes, and tasted her sweet lips on mine. I'm so tired, Sasha. I'm so cold. I'll just rest for a bit. Not yet, Greg. 36 caught my arm and kept me from falling on my face, his words soothing and kind. Not today. You have work to do. Look. At his command, my headlamp flared to life. The static died in my head, and I sucked in a gasp of air through my mask. In front of me, an array of complicated switchboards, dials, and controls waited. All the bulbs lit up like a Christmas tree. 
Newspaper clippings hung from a large corkboard bolted to the cramped walls of the compartment, along with a few black and white photographs of smiling, voluptuous pinup girls. A clock built by little round dials into the console read, 1302. At the forefront of the array stood a single black metal chair and on the desk, a set of antique black headphones. Paralyzed by the silence of my brain clearing, I gaped at the room in awe. Beep. I recoiled from the headset in surprise. It beeped again. A radio. My whole body shook in perplexed fear, but a strange curiosity overrode any sense of flight. A working radio, how is that possible? 36 picked up the headset its long black rubber cable plugged into the control panel and held it out to me. Nature needs balance, Greg. Seven ran from it and thus lost himself in it. You have a choice. Restore balance or plunge into the storm. Like a jackhammer, my heart thudded inside my chest and I stared at the headset in my hand. With an ominous click, the little dial clock on the panel rolled over to 1304. Deep inside my mind, like a flame lit in the dark, something shifted. Close the rift. As soft as a butterfly's wing beat, the whisper called to me, not a man or a woman, but a cool metallic voice, emotionless and yet unthreatening. It calmed my raging flood of anxiety. The ice left my veins and the compartment seemed a little less foreign in that moment. This someone didn't mean any harm. No, not someone I realized. It was the voice of something. Something enormous, cold and made of steel. I hear you. Muscles operating on autopilot. I sat down at the desk, unzipped my protective hood and focused all my energy on my thoughts. I want to help. Without my bulky hood, the air felt cool and fresh, and it dried the sweat on my neck in seconds. My name is Greg. The pulse in my temple slowed from its panicked race, and with a smile, I placed the headphones over my ears. What are your orders, Seraphim? 24. I opened my eyes and stared into the bright glare of no less than seven LED headlamps. Eleven, nine, fifteen, three, and two soldiers stared at me from the narrow doorway of the compartment, eyes wide with shock behind their mask visors. It took me a moment to realize how dark the compartment had become, the panel no longer alive with current, the bulbs and dials out. Around my ears, the black rubber headset barked forth no static, no more beeps, and the whisper in my head had vanished along with 36. Hey, I croaked, confused and petrified, eyeing the leveled rifle barrels of the guards. I, I was just... Who were you talking to? Came from behind the soldiers. The colonel pushed into the room and the others shrank back at his presence. Seven's anguished face flashed through my memories again, and I snapped my mouth shut unable to formulate words. He and I locked eyes, and the colonel flexed his right hand's grip on the service pistol that he carried. I asked you a question, 24. 
Who were you trying to contact? I don't know. I don't know. I wasn't trying to radio anyone. Please don't shoot me, please. I don't want to die. But instead of bleeding for mercy, I glanced back at the desk, clothed in shadow before me, and spotted an open logbook at my right elbow. I came here with a 36. He and I went to investigate a sound that we heard. Following my gaze, the colonel saw the book and his eyes narrowed to suspicious slits. With the careful movements of a cat stalking a mouse, he edged around me and picked up the logbook. One little portion of his face that I could see took on a stunned expression. Is this your handwriting? The colonel pushed the logbook at my face and among a long series of entries, my own pencil marks lay on the paper, dashes and dots and thick, bunched patterns. What the? When did I write that? I just sat down. I didn't even say anything over the radio. My face heated up and I squirmed in my chair, too afraid and confused to think clearly. I, I, don't, I don't even know what that is. It's Morse code. The colonel withdrew the book again to himself and studied it, using the barrel of his pistol as a pointer on the pages. R-16, look around for a code book. There should be a manual around here somewhere. R-16 lowered his weapon with a reluctant sigh, but snatched up a small blue book from the far side of the console after a few moments of searching. Here, sir. Tense silence followed while the colonel worked with the logbook and pencil, alongside three far to my right. R-16 and R-12 blocked the door behind me, their rifles still trained on my chest. 11, 9, and 15 huddled to the left side of the compartment, watching me with half-terrified stares. It made me feel like a caged animal, and I only wished to pull my protective hood back up, run to the rainy world outside, and back home to Sasha's waiting arms. The pencil tumbled from the colonel's gloved hand. He looked down at me in the little metal chair and for the first time, I caught a gleam of disbelief in his eyes. Who did you say you were with? 36, I coughed, my throat dry as a bone all at once. One of the other workers in my team. At this, 3, 11, 9, and 15 all shook their heads in unison. 24, there is no 36. 3 moved to rub his forehead but couldn't thanks to his suit and had to cross his arms instead. You're a part of a team of four just like everybody else. We only have 32 workers on our force, not 36. Stunned, I almost fell out of my seat. But he saved my life on the nets. I fell and 36 helped catch me. 15, tell them you were there. 15 took an instinctive step back at the entire room, now looking at him and dropped his gaze from mine to the floor. Dude. I caught you. I was surprised that I could do it too with only one hand. There wasn't anybody else. Like a thunderclap it hit me. On the ladder, 15 it seemed confused to me thanking both him and 36, because to him we were alone. The colonel hadn't been upset about the strange retro candy bar that 36 had given me for my birthday. 
He was just stunned to see candy from the 1940s looking brand new. I was the only one who had ever spoken to 36 or included him in our team. Eleven never assigned jobs to him. Nine never joked with him. Fifteen never asked him questions. Only me. Because 36 hadn't been there. But before I could panic at the sheer insanity of that realization, my eyes caught a small blur of black letters stenciled on one of the Geiger counters held up by the guards. Property of the Environmental Liminal Space Alleviation and Reduction Program. Just like the wording that I had seen on the dosimeter on my first day. The more I looked, the more that I saw it. Printed on an obscure label on these small rucksacks all of us workers had been given. Stamped onto the receivers of the rifles in the guard's hands. And etched into the handheld radio that was hooked to the colonel's belt. These weren't hand-me-downs. This was company property. We were company property. And it occurred to me that in the entire time that I had worked here, I had never once seen an emblem or a label for the Black Crow Foundation. Only for Elsar. Because just like 36, the Black Crow Foundation wasn't real either. They're not going to let me leave now. I'll be shot or worse. I'll never see Sasha again. Tears walled up in my eyes and I fought them in desperate panic. Please, I'm fine really, I'm not dangerous, really, I'm not. I'm not like Seven, I don't hear voices or anything. Please, Colonel Sir, you don't even have to pay me for today, I'll just go. Today, the Colonel leaned down to meet my eye level, his harsh tone softened by shock. 24. You've been missing for three days. What? I pleaded, and my outstretched hands trembled with despair. Th that's not possible. It hasn't even been an hour. I... Calm down. He placed the logbook in my lap and the colonel patted me on the shoulder with an almost sympathetic touch. Just stay calm and nobody will shoot you, alright? I need you to do something for me. Just this one thing and you can go home. I promise. Read this. Uh, really? Hope and relief welled in my chest. I snatched up the logbook and sniffled back tears behind my gas mask. Home. I would be home by the end of the week with Sasha and I could put all of this behind me. This entire idea had been one big lousy mistake. One I swore to myself that I would never repeat. But my eyes found the words on the translated page and I fought to breathe. 1219 incoming. BB 136. Come in, BB 136. This is CV 24. We have lost visual of you in the northern quadrant of the AO. Repeat, we have lost visual of you. Please confirm location. Over. 1225 incoming. BB-136, this is CV-24, 7th Fleet. What is your location? 1237 incoming. BB-136, USS Seraphim, are you reading us? Over. 1242 incoming. BB-136, please confirm your location and status. 1246 incoming. 
BB-136, be aware that multiple Soviet submarines have been reported in your vicinity. Are you under attack? Over. 1300 incoming. BB-136, this is Admiral Halsey, 7th Fleet Command on the USS Wyndham Bay. If you do not report within the next 10 minutes, I will assume you have been attacked by the enemy and will engage all Soviet craft within the area of operations with our full arsenal, including our atomic systems. For the last time, USS Seraphim, please respond. My gaze traveled to the newspaper clippings on the wall, and a horrific dread filled my guts. Each of the headlines came from post-World War II dates, but the events were all wrong. Truman vows to retake Poland from Soviets as atomic race intensifies. Stalin sends warships around Midway to thwart rumored US nuclear-capable warships. Red Army tanks score off with Allied soldiers in deadly showdown outside of Berlin. 7th Fleet sent to force Russian submarines from Pacific shipping lanes. The others watched my reaction with startled wonder, but for me, the truth rang like the long screaming descent of a bomb. It never ended. I whispered to myself behind the black rubber fortress of my mask. Not for them. They just kept fighting until... I forced myself to look down at the last message of the logbook and fought the urge to throw the little tablet. Unlike the other entries, this line of Morse code had been written in my handwriting. 1304 Outgoing Mayday, Mayday, 7th Fleet. This is BB-136, USS Seraphim. Do not launch your attack, I repeat. Do not launch your attack. We are not engaged by the Soviets. Our vessel has been caught in a maelstrom at approximately 165 degrees east and 30 degrees north. Electrical activity from these storms seems to be causing our radio to malfunction, and our lookouts report unusual waves of dangerous proportions. We are unable to veer out of the path of the storm at this time, and we will try to ride it out. After it passes, we will rendezvous with you at Midway. This is BB-136, USS Seraphim, signing off. I didn't even feel the logbook slide through my fingers on its way to the cold steel floor. Instead, I looked back at the little dial clock on the control panel and choked back a sob. The clock had stopped on 13.04. Thank you all for listening to this week's episode. I hope that you enjoyed it. Wherever you may be in the world, I hope that you're staying safe and sound. And as always, stay creepy.